Blog Talk Radio. Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Fatman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. Hey, what's cracking? Welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com. I'm your host, Darren McDuffie. And good show for you tonight. I have Dr. Ron Hogan, who's going to be coming on the show, actually waiting for him to call in or Skype in uh, with regards to the show. And um, while I'm waiting on him, just to give you a few announcements here uh, for the show, uh, if you have not connected with me on Facebook, please do so. I'm at Facebook.com slash I'm the Fat Man. My Twitter handle is I'm is uh, the Fat underscore man. I'm, I'm so used to saying I'm the fat man, I say it all the time. But the Twitter handle is the fat underscore man, fat is spelled P-H-A-T. I'm also on Google, so if you want to connect with me on Google+, Plus, please do so. And if you have not liked my YouTube channel, please do that as well. My YouTube is youtube.com slash fatbodybc, so P-H-A-T body B-C. So, all right, so I'm waiting for Dr. Hogan to call in, and while I'm waiting, just want to tell you about my brackets. About two, I think three or four years ago, I picked the NCAA champion, which was North Carolina, a couple of years ago, and ever since then, I have not been able to pick an actual champion. Uh, there's so much parity now. I don't know if you've been following the NCAA championships, but Mercer beat Duke, which I never would have thought. And then uh, North Carolina actually won their their, uh, first game. North Carolina is actually my favorite team. But they ended up losing the second game to Iowa State. But there is no way in the world that you'd be able to uh, pick any of the parity that's going on now. So I have Dr. Hogan calling in right now, so hold on. Oh, is that you, Dr. Ron? It is, yes. Okay, okay. I think we got it going. I don't know what's going on. I, I don't know what's happened. I think maybe because you might have tried to call me uh, via Skype. But uh, all right, so we got that, that situated. Can you uh, just go back over that, your story again, uh, Dr. Ron? Sorry. Sure. Uh, it's not an unusual story, particularly in celiac disease. I had symptoms and problems from childhood. Um, I was characterized as a picky eater, a fussy kid, uh, as an attention seeker, and uh, as overly emotional, and uh, as a hypochondriac because I was always saying that I was too sick to go to school, and then a few hours later I was just fine. And uh, the uh, doctor who got closest to an accurate diagnosis back then was one who thought that I had a colicky appendix. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to my mid-40s, and I was diagnosed with celiac disease when the gastroenterologist went in looking with an endoscopy looking for uh, stomach cancer. And so I was enormously relieved when he just found celiac disease, and uh, that started me on a road to better health. I was, for the first time, felt warm all the time, and, of course, I was chilly, prior to that because of iron deficiency 
and uh, I, the biggest thing I noticed was that going gluten-free changed the way my brain worked. I got mm-hmm. a lot smarter. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's been an exciting journey ever since. Yeah, I would I would agree so because you you uh, actually hooked up with Dr. Braley and you were able to uh, write the book uh, Dangerous Grains. But let's go back in yeah. time. Let's kind of just talk about. Um, and, and my first question for you was: Were we evolved to eat grains? How did, I know in your book you covered uh, hunter gatherers, but were we particularly evolved to eat grains? No. Uh, in fact, our uh, gastrointestinal tracts. Uh, are clearly not well equipped to eat grains. The, uh, we're much closer to, uh, uh, um, although we're omnivores, for sure, we can eat a, a variety of foods, uh, we're better equipped by quite a lot to eat uh, mostly fatty meats uh, and have eat some vegetables and fruits uh, uh, on a supplementary level. So we, we really never were intended to eat grains. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, is worth looking at there, we have very expensive brains. Our brains require a great deal of energy to keep them going. They're, they're a tiny part of our bodies, and yet they consume a significant portion, somewhere around a quarter of the energy we burn in food uh, is used by the brain. So it's, it's a very expensive bit of tissue, and uh, those expensive brains can't have evolved eating grains. We just, uh, the uh, food just isn't uh, dense enough in nutrients, um, and our GI tracts are not well equipped for grains either. Humans in general are not able to fully digest grains. We just don't have the uh, enzymes necessary for that. And even ruminants, if they're fed a lot of grains, don't fare well on them. They can become quite sick. Yeah, and I mentioned in your question. Yeah, you answered my question perfectly. And I I know you mentioned meat, but uh, in the book, uh, it had a great um, sentence in there where it said that we were just evolved to eat more meat, but more so internal organs. And I know that for me, I just started eating a lot more organ meats. I had some lamb liver, and I posted that on um, Facebook, and everybody was like, I don't want to eat lamb liver. But can you talk about that a little bit more (laughs) about eating just eating internal organs? And I remember from the movie Apocalypto, a scene in in that movie where they actually killed, I don't know what it was. I know they killed an animal, and they were eating the internal organs. But that's what we we were really eating back then, correct? Well, uh, the yes, I think there's uh, good evidence to suggest that uh, the uh, hunter gatherers uh, that we that were our uh, far back ancestors were eating organ meats. They would uh, discard the uh, lean muscle meat. Uh, that was dog food as far as they were concerned. And even modern hunter-gatherers have that same attitude. Um, so uh, the, the organ meats, and particularly tongue and brain, and uh, those kinds of things were all um, provided a very high-fat 
a moderate protein diet, which is uh, clearly something that we're best suited for. Now, you can get a similar kind of constitution of the diet, uh, collecting mollusks uh, from the seashore. And, uh, you know, there's, there are other approaches for sure that will give us that same kind of constitution. But in general, we evolved eating uh, somewhere around uh, 65 to 80 percent fats by calorie, and uh, the remainder of the diet was dominated by protein with a little bit of carbohydrate. I mean, we, we grabbed whatever carbohydrate came along, and in the right season, we would eat berries and fruits, and we would eat them. Uh, actually, they would help us store fat for the on upcoming winter uh, because berries and fruits, of course, ripen up in the uh, uh, summer and fall. So that, that, high, that protein and, and high-fat diet that you just spoke of, I just I interviewed uh, Dr. David Jockers um, probably, I can't remember, a couple of episodes ago, but he talked more about a ketogenic diet. And I know that you mentioned that in the book as well. So that is a ketogenic diet, that protein and, and high-fat type of diet? Yes, it is. And the evidence is pretty darn clear that we had to have evolved eating a diet that would keep us in ketosis most of the year. I would say that in uh, late summer and early fall, <clears throat> we would be more likely to uh, shift out of ketosis because fructose, the uh, most common sugar in, in berries and fruits, mm -hmm. uh, does cause us to switch out of ketosis very quickly and uh, moves us into a state where we're storing a lot of fat because we're producing a lot of insulin. And if you look at most mammals, uh, especially living in temperate zones, do store fat uh, in preparation for the winter. Yeah, yeah. For the audience out there, I know that we had some difficulties uh, before, but if you want to call in, you have a question for Dr. Ron, if you're still out there listening, the number is 646-716-9371. Again, 646-716-9371. Now, we, we shifted away from um, being hunter-gatherers and got more into agriculture, and there were some advantages about that, and you discussed those in the book. Can you kind of give us the advantages of just getting more geared towards uh, agriculture and farming? Oh, sure, because uh, farming allowed people to group together uh, in a defensive mode, then we had essentially a safer lifestyle in terms of being safe from predators and also safe from other groups of humans who uh, might want to take over our territory. It, uh, uh, living in groups like that also gave us uh, economies from the standpoint that we would cultivate grains um, and, and get other foods at, cooperatively so that we could, uh, and, and grains allowed us to store foods. And while there was some food storage going on in, in hunter-gatherer cultures, it was, uh, stored food was not a common thing until cereal grains were cultivated. They're, they're more amenable by quite a lot to 
storage. All you've got to do is keep them dry and keep the, the uh, uh, any kind of grain predator out, which is uh, not much of a task. Um, where uh, later developments have, you know, pointed us to problems that arise out of getting the grains moldy and that, people understood that very quickly and were able to uh, look after that issue. If you look at the Roman uh, construction methods, they always kept a basement that used a, a, a drying uh, fire both to heat the grain, to keep it dry, and to heat the home they were living in. Yeah, yeah. Is there any way to make grains like more uh, palatable that we can uh, actually eat them? Is there any way? Because I know uh, if you follow West End Price, they tell you to soak certain things. Um, is that a, a, a way to make it more digestible? Sure. Uh, there are methods of that sort that people have been using for a long time. For instance, the uh, Mesoamerican natives were uh, milling corn on, on limestone and that freed up some of the uh, amino acids that uh, for absorption by humans that weren't uh, that aren't otherwise available from corn and uh, soaking certainly can assist in, in making grains more palatable eating uh, shoots rather than the uh, matured grain or partly matured grain uh, uh, is better than fully matured grain in terms of being more palatable. But understand, you're still going to have many of the detrimental effects of, of grains from the standpoint that they're still going to contain uh, phytates that bind to minerals and, and uh, uh, you know, all the um, protective devices that grains use like in humans, we have developed immune systems that are active. Plants have to develop adaptations that protect them from animals preying on them. Mm -hmm. And so the, the outer shell of the grain is typically quite uh, harsh on the digestive system of, of animals that would eat grains. And in fact, uh, grains will make you quite sick as a human without the milling and uh, cooking and so on that we typically engage in in order to make grain-based foods palatable. Yeah, I know you're in Canada and we're here in the United States, but one of the things that I find very appalling is, uh, you know, they, we had a food pyramid and now it's this my plate thing, but on that my plate thing they suggest having grains you know you have your you know obviously your protein and your carbohydrates and then they have you have a serving of grains and one of the things that i find uh odd about that whole thing is that they're trying to promote health but yet it's it's they're trying to promote grains as a way to get more fiber into the diet do we necessarily need grains um for fiber or can we kind of I've heard different things about fiber, and maybe, you, you know, I don't know if you know anything about this, but I just wanted to ask that question. But do we need grains Absolutely. for fiber? Can we get it? No, we that? don't. Okay. Uh, we, no, we don't need grains for fiber. 
and uh, more importantly, we don't need uh, fiber, period. The whole notion of fiber uh, uh, being a necessity came from uh, a physician uh, named Burkitt, uh, and it's after him that Burkitt's lymphoma was named. He was a, uh, a missionary, a physician uh, uh, missionary in Africa, and he observed that people uh, uh, who didn't eat a Western diet, uh, the people where he was working in Africa, uh, didn't develop a lot of the diseases of civilization. Based on that, he postulated that the difference in diet was fiber. And he even later recanted that theory, saying, no, it, it probably wasn't accurate. Uh, but by the time he did, it was already so widely uh, accepted that it was too late. Um, uh, his, his recanting had little impact. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the way uh, fiber of that sort, fiber from grains, uh, improves uh, regularity is by irritating the bowel wall. Uh, it's really not a good thing, and it, it causes the shedding of the mucosal layer uh, and that's what allows for uh, regularity. It's a much better choice to look at um, uh, fruit and vegetables as sources of fiber if you need them for regularity. But I find uh, I, I follow a fairly ketogenic diet, and I just I don't find that any of that is a problem for me. And I'm getting on in years. I'm 66 years old, so. <laughs> I'm not exactly young anymore. And, uh, you know, I know other people who are much older than I am following a similar diet, and they have no problem as long as they follow the diet. Yeah, yeah, I've been hearing some amazing things about the ketogenic diet, and we'll get into that a little bit more when we start talking about cancer. But uh, let's talk about gluten. One thing that I think confuses people, and I'm gluten sensitive myself, and I found out four or five years ago and just eliminated from my diet and was able to, I had, was diagnosed with arthritis in both knees from years and years of playing basketball. And when I got off the of gluten, the arthritis went away. And when I tell people that story, they find it very, very hard to believe, but I'm just, I just always give that testament to them. But one thing that I know is that a lot of people don't even know what gluten is, and they don't know the degrees. I know that you're celiac, and then you have what I have, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Can you kind of go over that and ex just explain what gluten is first, and then go into the different degrees of, of uh, disease patterns with people as far as explaining celiac and then just gluten sensitivity? Sure. Uh, celiac disease is an autoimmune disease where um, the trigger is the storage proteins from wheat, rye, barley, and possibly oats, but uh, that's open to question. The, um, what happens is that when a person with celiac disease eats something that contains uh, gluten, uh, uh, and gluten is a uh, subfamily or a family of proteins that actually allow the seed to germinate. That's what feeds the seed as it germinates 
and starts putting roots down into the soil and first begins to grow. Um, so that is necessary for a, a, a grain kernel to develop into a plant. Um, when that the disease is triggered by, uh, well, there, there are several different theories on it, but I think the most common one is something called molecular mimicry. That's mm -hmm. where the uh, gluten is digested or partly digested, but some proteins that resist digestion are leaked through uh, the um, intestinal wall into the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And this is the first stage of abnormality because gluten actually triggers larger spaces between the cells that line the intestinal wall. And it leaks into the bloodstream. The immune system identifies part of the amino acid sequence, like uh, a sequence of several amino acids that make up this protein, and it develops selective antibodies against that uh, string of amino acids. In doing so then, those antibodies will attack both cell tissue and the gluten, uh, and the cell tissue they'll attack uh, contain that sequence of amino acids. So the kind of autoimmune disease that the individual develops is going to vary from one person to the next. And in your case, where you're, you had uh, knee pain uh, mm -hmm. and arthritis, uh, what happened was that probably there was a sequence of amino acids in your synovial fluid or, or joint fluid that was similar to or, or the same as uh, the sequence that your immune system was sensitized to in gluten. Okay? Now that's the most serious end of the spectrum, or it's perceived as the most serious. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think that um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity is just, in its own way just as serious as celiac disease. And one of the reasons I say that is that the only study that's ever been done of uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity with respect to cancer rates shows a higher rate of uh, cancer uh, in Ireland for the people who had non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Uh, yeah. People with celiac disease are already at a higher rate than or a higher risk than the general population. So I think right there that suggests a more serious condition in non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Yeah, one of the things I'm... Uh wanted to just throw out there to you and get you to comment on was you see people and they think that they're going to get this real tight. Like I was lucky. I got arthritis in my knees. I always had this brain fog or I would get sleepy after eating gluten. So it wasn't until I talked to a holistic physician that kind of alerted me to this that I kind of woke up and said, you know what, I'm going to give this gluten-free thing a try and I did it for seven days and the difference was like night night and day but you can have you can have you can be gluten sensitive and not even know that there are no visible symptoms like you may not get arthritis you may not get 
uh, blurred vision or anything or have brain fog, but you're steadily killing, it's steadily killing your body, ta- attacking your organs and your tissues. Is that a, um, a good observation there that someone can have it and not know because they don't have any visible symptoms? It's not like a food allergy where you eat, might eat shrimp, or you might eat peanuts and you get anaphylactic shock or something like that. But so many people out there think that they are going to get that when it's more of a silent killer. Is that a fair assumption? That's absolutely fair. And, in fact, one of the reasons I was characterized as a bit of a hypochondriac when I was a kid and young adult is that I appeared very healthy. I worked at heavy manual work. Uh, I was uh, working in the moving business, moving people's furniture, uh, when they move from house to house, uh, I actually worked for an Allied Van Lines agent, and uh, I worked at that hard work all the time, and did quite well at it. Uh, and I seemed very fit, and uh, so uh, a frequent response to my saying I was sick, and then a few hours later feeling well again was what, uh, you know, that I was uh, faking it or something. In fact, I appeared quite healthy and functioned in a, quite a healthy manner most of the time, with, which was interspersed with these bouts of illness that would run for a few hours or a few days or sometimes as long as a few weeks. But by and large, I seemed to be a pretty healthy person. And then this... Um, uh, so, you know, it's not unusual for people to not have any symptoms at all, to feel just fine, and you, if you ask them about their health, they'll tell you they're very healthy, and yet, when they cut out gluten, these same people will say, wow, I feel a lot better. So it's really difficult to identify sometimes, and in fact, um, impossible to identify without trying the diet, and at the same time that I'm saying that, I'm also recognizing that by doing so, you reduce your risk of, uh, or your, uh, you reduce the opportunity for getting an accurate diagnosis because celiac disease will often go into remission very quickly and it's virtually impossible to diagnose when you're gluten-free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation with a colleague today, and uh, I was just listening to him from afar. He was talking to someone else, and he he obviously was diagnosed with gluten sensitivity, and he's like, yeah, I know just how much gluten I can eat before it actually affects me, and I'm sitting there cringing. I'm like, you have no idea, but in the book you talked about, I think it was less than a gram of gluten, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that can affect the intestinal wall. Is that is that right? That's absolutely correct. Less than a gram uh, can cause increased intestinal permeability. What happens is it, it triggers overproduction of a uh, protein messenger called zonulin. It's the, actually the precursor of haptoglobin 2. And what zonulin does is it, signals the epithelial cells that line the intestine to move apart, which makes larger gaps through which various food proteins can leak into the bloodstream and cause all manner of food allergies. I would argue that if you have 
a lot of allergies of any sort that you should be looking carefully at excluding gluten. And taking a, a small amount of gluten, as, as your colleague does, mm-hmm. increases his or her likelihood of developing autoimmune disease to begin with. And there's also an increase, he's increasing his risk of a number of other issues, especially neurological disease. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff is on the rise. You're seeing a lot of people that are suffering from Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, all of this stuff. And it was in your book, you you go over that. And I wanted to touch on that later. Um, The first, but before we do that, can we just talk about how can you determine your risk for celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity? Sure. Um, There's three levels of determining it. The first level is get a blood test. Uh, Tissue transglutaminase is the most common one now. But also get uh, a measurement of uh, total IgA. And so that will tell you if you're IgA deficient, then your uh, tissue transglutaminase test is going to be uh, negative regardless, and your risk is going to be very high of having uh, celiac disease. Um, There's also uh, endomesium antibody testing, and the best approach is to get both tissue transglutaminase, endomesium antibody, and get uh, total IgA measurement all at the same time. Also at the same time, get uh, testing for IgG and IgA anti-gliadin antibody. Mm-hmm. And uh, the endomesium and transglutaminase antibodies will give you a pretty good indication of whether or not you've got celiac disease. If your total IgA is low, then you've got IgA deficiency, and that indicates that there's a very good chance you've got celiac disease. Those indicators should suggest a referral to a gastroenterologist and conducting an an endoscopic biopsy uh, of the sort that I had to confirm celiac disease although I know a lot of physicians now are diagnosing celiac disease just based on the uh, on positive endomesium or transglutaminase antibodies. The next yeah, we, stage... Sorry? Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. The next stage is the anti-glidin antibodies. If you have either IgG or IgA antibodies that are elevated then you are gluten sensitive. If you don't have the other antibodies, then chances are pretty good that uh, you're non-celiac gluten sensitive. Um, And what that means is that you shouldn't be eating gluten. Your immune system is mounting a reaction uh, against gliadin, which is a subfamily of uh, proteins in the gluten family. And so if you're mounting an immune response against the commonest food in your diet, the smart thing to do is stop eating that uh, food. And what happens there is you improve your health and you also reduce the risk of developing some serious health problems down the line. 
Yeah, yeah. And one thing I wanted you to touch on as well, and this was a, a big concern of mine because I know you sent me an article on you know uh, uh, just gluten and, and breast cancer, and I, I read that article, but can this run in families? Is this something that's passed down the family line? Like I know I am. I have a sister, but she's never been tested, and maybe my mother might have had this as well. So is this something that can be uh, in a family, like just hereditary? Absolutely, it's hereditary. Celiac disease is hereditary, and mm-hmm. so is non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Now, the very fact that you mount an immune reaction against the uh, protein storage proteins in grains, if you're a celiac, that tells you that you have a vigorous reaction, and it also tells you that your genes did not evolve eating these grains and that you have a good effective immune system that identifies and tries to destroy foreign proteins that are getting into your bloodstream. Mm-hmm. It's also the case with non-celiac gluten sensitivity that you have other genetic markers for sure, but those also suggest that you have a good strong immune system. The problem lies in that you're eating a food that you should not be eating. And if one person in a family has it, the whole family should be tested. And for instance, I was tested for for celiac disease, and both of my children tested positive for celiac disease. Hmm. And um, I believe that my father died of undiagnosed celiac disease. He died of multiple duodenal ulcerations. Uh, He bled to death from them. Mm -hmm. And my brother died of lymphoma, and celiacs are high risk for lymphoma as well. Yeah, we'll get into that later because I really was uh, astounded when I was reading about the cancer and the effect of what it has but we'll get into that a little bit later. Is that immediate family, or would that be more of people that are outside of my family? Because it was just me, my mom, and my sister when I was growing up. But I'm wondering if that would be passed down from the family line. My grandmother and grandfather are both passed away, but that would mean that my mom and her sisters might have been uh, gluten sensitive as well. Is that a fair assumption to say that, that everybody, my whole family needs to be tested, aunts, uncles? Absolutely. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and it has some astounding implications. Uh, yeah. For instance, oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying that, and it makes a lot of sense. I have an uncle who's older who's going through dementia, which I think might be associated with the fact that he's gluten sensitive. Um, I have another uncle who has uh, health problems with his hip, which he has an arthritic hip, which uh, he doesn't want to get replaced. So I'm just thinking that all these problems can be because of one food that we're eating in our family and we had no idea that we were sensitive, other than me, that knew that they were sensitive to it and finally got off of it. Yes, and the a disturbing thing for me is, for instance, with my wife, she had quite severe arthritis in her hips, her feet, mm-hmm. and her hands, and there was quite a disfiguring arthritis. And uh, when she was, oh, 40, uh, 
she actually took about an hour to get uh, moving around enough that uh, uh, she was reasonably comfortable. And uh, she went gluten-free just to keep the household gluten-free when I was diagnosed. (laughs) She got tremendous relief from her arthritis. So, yeah, it's... uh, uh, and can it work with people with dementia? Uh, it can certainly stop the progression. Mm-hmm. It can't reverse it. Mm-hmm. So it's a preventative measure, but it can't reverse it. Uh, to some extent, a ketogenic diet can reverse neurological damage, but especially with respect to memory. But uh, the gluten-free diet uh, can stop development of dementia in its tracks yeah yeah let's talk about the um, obesity and gluten link because I've always believed that obesity is just inflammation in the body and just looking at a lot of different things and studying a lot of things I'm thinking that gluten is actually helping that inflammation or assisting that inflammation for people who have a problem with obesity and I know from just some stuff that I read they say that Going on a gluten-free diet can really help you if you are uh, just struggling with your weight. I repeatedly come under fire for saying what I'm about to say from conventional nutritionists and dietitians. (laughs) The the studies I've seen show that obese people who go gluten-free Uh, reduce their daily caloric intake by about 400 calories. Mm -hmm. And that translates, in most cases, into weight loss. Not in all cases. There are some people who go gluten-free and actually gain weight. But in my experience, that's the exception rather than the rule. On a very personal level, I talked my mom into trying a gluten-free diet after I saw my wife's positive response to it because my mother had pretty severe arthritis. And in her 70s, she undertook a gluten-free diet, and she wound up being able to go back golfing, Hmm. and she lost 100 pounds. Just and lived a pretty comfortable life. Yeah, well, isn't it? And, yeah, isn't it? Um, because it's not only the the obesity. What I'm noticing too is a lot of women, and there are a lot of men now that are having thyroid pl- problems as well, and gluten can interfere with the thyroid. Correct. Well, it's a yes. Uh, where gluten is uh, problematic is that it triggers autoimmune attacks on uh, the thyroid gland itself or the hormones produced by the thyroid gland. So yes, they, the, uh, uh, indirectly gluten can be causing obesity through uh, the autoimmune thyroid disease. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also you mentioned in a book, and I just wanted you to kind of... Uh, comment on this as well as you said uh, anyone who has any respiratory ailments I know people that have asthma people that have bronchitis just any respiratory ailment you said that they should be tested for celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity can you comment on that 
Absolutely. What happens is when people eat gluten, it causes the epithelial cells to move apart. In the lungs, you're already, you've got your uh, blood supply right near the surface of the tissue in order to uh, transfer carbon dioxide out and absorb oxygen in. Anything you breathe into those lungs when you're eating gluten uh, is going to be susceptible to entering the bloodstream as whole proteins. When it enters the bloodstream, you start an autoimmune attack on your lung walls. And uh, now, in some cases, you develop a condition called fibrosing alveolitis, which is a condition I have in my lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, in most cases, what happens is you develop allergies to various airborne substances around you. And you say, oh, I've got to avoid that. I'm allergic to it. And that is true that you have the allergy. But what caused the allergy was the increased permeability of the tissues in your lungs. We evolved for millions of years uh, with uh, being exposed to all kinds of airborne allergens. And if we had developed the allergies the way we develop them now, our lives would have been very short. But they weren't. You know, uh, barring unfortunate encounters with saber-toothed tigers and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. we often live pretty long lives. Yeah, I would agree with you there. And uh, I, out of the book, I took some high-risk uh, groups for gluten sensitivity, and you said uh, we were just discussing allergies, uh, autoimmunity, bowel disease, uh, cancer, which we're going to go through. And one of the things I found really interesting, too, and I didn't know this, and, and I'm laughing behind it, but you said people with short stature, like really, really short people, are probably either celiac or, or gluten sensitive. And uh, I found that um, because you you look at people and you say, oh, this person is uncommonly short, but that could be, you could look at them now and say maybe this person is suffering from, from celiac disease. Is that correct? That's correct, and I, uh, the, the thrust of what I was saying is that they're most likely celiac rather than gluten-sensitive. And mm-hmm. the uh, reason I say that is because the, the celiac disease actually interferes with uh, growth hormones, and, but because celiac disease is also genetic, a person can uh, have short parents and short grandparents and imagine, well, okay, I guess it's genetic, uh, the cause of my short stature. But in fact, uh, we've got a situation with my grandson. My son didn't, uh, wasn't diagnosed until he was an adult, but his son was gluten-free from the day he was born, and they tried him on gluten before he started school, and he got very sick, so they decided, okay, they, uh, he, they'd keep him gluten-free. And he is, by a full head, taller than anybody else in his classroom. This is really funny if you look at his parents, because my son is about five foot seven, and mm-hmm. my daughter-in-law is about five foot two or three. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's really funny to see this young fellow, eleven years old, towering over his parents already. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Another thing, too, is I know that every time you turn around, someone is having uh, problems 
you know, speaking about your, your son and, and your grandson and your son, but you have people that are having problems here in the U.S. and probably Canada as well with difficulties to conceive. And that's one of the things that um, also are, could be attached to being sensitive to gluten or celiac, correct? Uh, absolutely, that's correct. Uh, they, I don't think anyone has solved that particular puzzle to determine exactly why the infertility happens more frequently among people who are gluten sensitive. But it certainly does. And there are actually, there's a much greater propensity for miscarriage among women who are gluten sensitive as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, there have been a number of postulations about it. But uh, as far as I know, that puzzle hasn't been solved. Nonetheless, it's still there. So if you're having trouble conceiving, it would probably be a good idea to uh, try a gluten-free diet and see how that works. Yeah, yeah, I would think so because you have a lot of people out there who have the ability to conceive. And I just heard a story today about someone who um, had a ton of miscarriages, and I told him, I was like, yeah, I was just reading the book Dangerous Grains, and they said that if you have a lot of miscarriages, it's because you might have been celiac and you never got diagnosed. She was, she was finally able to conceive. But I think that um, the person said that she had miscarried at least seven or eight times before actually having a child. So I was like, oh, yes. well, she might have been celiac, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Another thing I wanted to throw out there is I know that you have, we have people here that bake for a living. Maybe they're working in a, a bakery or something or they like to bake all the time. And in your book, you mentioned the fact that people who work with flour a lot are probably have more propensity to be sensitive to gluten. Can you kind of talk about that as well? Yes, there's uh, several studies that have shown that people who uh, work around flour a lot at, at flour mills and uh, uh, in bakeries mm-hmm. have a greater risk of what's called baker's asthma and mm-hmm. that is a form of gluten sensitivity. There's also a greater risk for those folks of uh, a number of, of other features of, of uh, celiac, oh, celiac disease or gluten sensitivity uh, in the form of um, the cancers and so on that we're at higher risk for. Yeah, yeah. And you just mentioned cancer. Let's get into that because I was kind of holding back from that. But let's get okay. into cancer and, and gluten and how that whole thing uh, evolves because I was looking at uh, just reading the book. I had no idea that we had natural killer cells. And how how does this all this start to happen and how have grains contributed to this epidemic of cancer that we're seeing? Okay, we have... Uh, a part of our brain that we call the HPA axis or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and that's the control center that manages natural killer cells. Natural killer cells are cells that uh, travel throughout our body and their job is to is surveillance and destruction. They, sur- they look for cells with uh, different DNA than our cells, mm-hmm. our cell cells. Now, they can have different DNA because the DNA is damaged and it is now a cancer cell, 
or they can have different DNA because they're a microbe that's gotten into our bodies. Natural killer cells are uh, the part of our immune system that go out and find those cells with the different DNA and destroy them. And what happens in the context of celiac disease is that you get uh, morphine-like substances uh, called opioids from the gluten that you absorb and they move into your brain and they alter blood flow patterns in the brain which gives you a, a number of uh, psychiatric and psychological problems that can arise out of eating gluten but it also causes a down regulation or a uh, reduction in activity of natural killer cells through uh, attachment on the HPA axis. The opioid peptides also will downregulate natural killer cells through direct contact. So by both pathways, uh, opioids, for, opioids from gluten will reduce our ability to protect ourselves from uh, cancer cells and from foreign uh, infectious agents. And what that means is then that the uh, cancer cells can reproduce with impunity. Now, uh, I originally postulated that uh, a gluten-free diet or the use of opioid blockers, uh, there's Narcan, Naloxone, there's a number of uh, commercially available pharmaceuticals that will halt the action of uh, opioids by blocking them from attaching. So, for instance, when a, a baby is born now, if a woman has had to have a, um, a narcotic for the pain to, to manage the pain when she's giving birth, then they, as soon as the baby is born, they will give uh, him or her an injection of one of these opioid blockers so it doesn't harm the baby. Mm -hmm. And... Um, mm -hmm. The same process, by that same process, uh, you would expect, based on, on how opioids impact on uh, natural killer cells and their activation, that similar opioid blockers would uh, cause a remission in cancer. And in fact, there's a group in Arizona that has reported that very thing. And... Um, the, but cancer is a much larger issue than just those cancers caused by um, downregulation of natural killer cells. And I want to say that if I ever get diagnosed with any kind of cancer, I will be following a ketogenic diet quite rigorously. I'm not rigorous about it now. Mm -hmm. I follow a, a gluten-free diet rigorously. And I, I'm reasonably good at following a ketogenic diet, but uh, if there's a special occasion or something, then I'm not above having some sweets or, or mm -hmm. some starchy foods. So yeah. I knock myself out of ketosis. Yeah, you got to loosen your belt a little bit. Um, what about, uh, we're just talking about the, the cancer cells, and you, I think in the book there was just, they were talking about, how heroin addicts get cancer as well, and it's just from that same type of thing that they, the opioids that are being released from the cancer, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I just found it 
very interesting with the fact that heroin and that whole thing of how, you know, the brain can get addicted to that, and the brain can get addicted to gluten as well, correct? Yes, absolutely. It's quite addictive, and people who quit gluten often uh, report that it's uh, quite an addiction, and uh, they struggle a lot with it. The... um, uh, the thing you're referring to there is I analyzed the uh, um, rates of a number of different cancers among uh, intravenous drug users in New York City, and this was reported in other studies, and I also looked at the uh, types and rates of cancers reported in the medical literature uh, to be more uh, overly common among people with celiac disease and found that there was considerable overlap. And that's what led me down the path, uh, the research path, to looking at that issue. Uh, but with respect to the addiction component, they can be quite addictive and it, it can be very difficult for someone to go gluten-free. They're constantly craving that food or, or some food that, that has gluten in it, but it goes away in fairly short order. Uh, I was too sick to notice it by the time I was diagnosed, so mm-hmm. I, I was let off the hook there. I don't know if, I'm, if I was addicted to it or not, but uh, I, I know that it's, it's a challenge for most people who first begin a uh, gluten-free diet. Yeah, I had a bad cookie habit, and I, I think that saved me from either... <laughs> <laughs> from getting diabetes because I used to eat like a whole tray of cookies and after I went gluten-free, I don't have that you know cookie craving anymore. Speaking of that, what's your opinion on gluten-free products? Because I know for me every now and then I want a hot dog and I'm like, oh, I can't eat a hot dog without a bun. And I've been lately I've been getting into just getting butternut lettuce and putting a hot dog in there instead of going for like a UD's gluten-free bun. But what's your opinion on gluten-free products? Okay, I love you, Udi's. <laughs> That's uh, great bread and great buns. But yeah. um, by and large, I don't eat them. Uh, but uh, like you, you know, now and again I want a hot dog, and, and mm-hmm. there's just no getting around the need for a bun as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, you know, so I will indulge in them occasionally. Mm-hmm. And, but I've got to be careful because it can't. It doesn't take too much indulgence before I find myself sliding down that slippery slope where I'm eating way too much. Yeah. You know, I I'm, don't really have a weight problem, but I don't want to develop one either. So I mm-hmm. I find myself. Uh, my wife brought home some gluten-free baked goods not very long ago, and she had to box of cookies there and I guess my name was on them or something because I sat down and I ate the whole darn box (laughs) and that I'm inclined to do that kind of thing so I've got to be kind of careful yeah I'm like I'm exactly with you I'm the same way um what about rice because you mentioned in your you mentioned in your uh in the book uh about just staying away from rice and I know uh sometimes my girlfriend and I we both are gluten sensitive and there's a um a place that we'll go and she makes a lot of the things out of rice. Is there a danger in in white rice? Yeah, um, there's a couple of issues with respect to rice. The first one is that rice has an affinity for arsenic. So if Mm -hmm. the rice is grown 
uh, in a water table where the mining has taken place and there's a lot of arsenic in the water table, then that rice is going to pick it up and the, the uh, whole grain rice or the brown rice that comes from that will be particularly uh, cause for concern because of the arsenic levels. Uh, but that's not the only thing. The other thing is that it contains anti-nutrients, the whole grain rice does, similar to what you see from gluten. Uh, so you've got uh, phytates that will mix with minerals in the stomach and form a covalent bond with them that we don't have enzymes to break. So we wind up, we may be getting adequate calcium, but we're losing it out the bottom end rather than being able to make use of it in our uh, bodies. So that's uh, one of the concerns with, uh, or two of the concerns with rice. A third concern is that it's highly glycemic. So you've got this high sugar food. Now, it's not as bad as taking a spoonful of sugar and eating it, but it's moving in that direction. So that's the third issue with rice. So there's three kind of major issues with it. Uh, one is that while it's gluten-free, uh, it does attract arsenic. Two is that uh, it has anti-nutrients in it. And the third is that it's highly glycemic. And those, of course, are also issues with uh, gluten grains. So uh, although gluten grains are not, don't have the same level of affinity for arsenic. So, you know, uh, but the other two complaints are equally valid with respect to gluten grains. So, you know, I think the occasional indulgence is okay. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenge is to find some balance there. Yeah, because I know a lot of people, once they can't eat gluten anymore, they just go dive right into gluten-free. And I know at the beginning I kind of did somewhat something somewhat similar but I'm learning now that, hey, a hot dog every once in a while is okay, um, just every once in a while and not so frequently. But I know people who, oh, I can't eat gluten anymore, so I'm just going to get everything gluten-free. And you look at some of those ingredients on the back of some of those products, gluten-free products, and they're just as horrendous as the regular products. <laughs> it's like yeah, you, you, don't, yeah. Yeah, you don't know where to turn. So, But I got – Two more questions for you, and I know we kind of start the show late due to difficulties, but I have one thing that I put together, and it didn't dawn on me until just reading a book, is that when my mother, in her last couple of days when she was living before she uh, uh, died from breast cancer, they put her on a morphine drip. And when reading that section, we just talked about the opioid effect of um, the intravenous drugs, and I'm like, could that have made the cancer spread? I know it probably made her not suffer as more, but I'm thinking that that opioid effect might have made the cancer spread even more throughout her body. And I'm like, okay, we have all this information. Why did not my doctor know this? Is that a fair assumption there? Uh, yes, it is a fair assumption, but it's, it, there's, and I'm sure your doctor is most likely aware that opioids uh, do promote uh, cancer by downregulating natural killer cells. The problem is that he has to make a decision 
between pain management mm-hmm. and uh, cancer uh, advancement. And if it was in the last few days before your mom passed away, that mm-hmm. was absolutely the kindest and most appropriate thing to do. Yeah, that's uh, what I was thinking. It, there's a great deal of pain involved. Yeah, uh, but if it, equally, if it was... Go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, when my brother was dying of lymphoma, he, uh, he and I talked, and, and one of the things he said was that... Uh, he, he was. He had so little time. He didn't want to waste any of it, sleeping or or in a drug-induced haze. So he took as little morphine as he could to manage the pain, because he wanted to savor what time he had left. And and you know, so there's a balancing act there that I think should be up to the individual who's suffering, and probably less up to the doctor. I think doctors should just uh, write a prescription that allows the individual to make their own choices on that level. Yeah, yeah. And two more, two more questions from you, and I'm, I'm going to let you go here. The first one is just let's talk about children for the first one. And I, I believe that somewhere in like the first chapter of the book or maybe second chapter, you mentioned frequent ear infections in children and how they can be linked to gluten and dairy allergies. And I know I have a, a cousin who had to get their um, tubes put in their ears. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Now, in my experience, that's more common with um, the ear infections are more commonly tied to dairy, uh, problems with dairy. But uh, it's also quite common in association with problems with gluten. And frankly, you know, instead of putting kids on on course after course of antibiotic, and instead of putting kids on um, putting tubes to drain their ears and that, now those are necessary, again, to manage pain. uh, But once the pain is reduced... I think it's important to just change the child's diet. And yeah. um, you can circumvent an awful lot of these problems just by cutting out gluten and dairy. And frankly, dairy has its own set of problems when it comes to children. It actually induces just drinking regular glass of milk can cause iron deficiency. Yeah, and also you uh, there was also something in there where you talked about, and I had this when I was younger, I just had problems with learning. And now that I'm a little bit older, I'm going back now after reading your book and saying, man, I I was probably gluten sensitive when I was younger because I just had a hell of a time learning my colors and learning my alphabet. And I'm thinking now that, hey, man, it it probably was gluten. And I had no idea back then what was causing me problems. And the other link is autism. And we're seeing a lot of these things come to the forefront now with ADD and autism, and no one's there's, – there's a few people out there that are making the connection, but you still have parents that are giving their kids either, you know, gluten for the most part and dairy, and they're not realizing there's a link between the autism and the ADD and why their child can't pay attention in class. Can you talk about that a little Absolutely. bit? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the frustrating things for me – I'm a retired school teacher, oh. and I – find it very frustrating. I had one young fellow. Uh, he, I taught him in grade 7, 
-hmm. And then I was away on a sabbatical, and I returned uh, to, uh, I was placed with the same board, but at a different school, and there he was in my grade 10 English class. And this young fella could sound out the words, he could read, but by the time he got to the end of a sentence, he couldn't remember how the sentence started. And he was a, a very athletic young man, Mm-hmm. And his coach, the uh, head of the phys ed department, uh, suggested to him that he talk to me about diet, uh, getting on a different diet, in order to uh, be, do better with his athletics. So he came and talked to me, and I watched, watched this young fellow go gluten-free in the fall. He, he cut out gluten and dairy. And the following spring, he was reading novels for pleasure. I watched him sitting outside the school on a bench reading a novel for pleasure. This is a young fellow that could not retain anything. And when I talked to him after uh, after seeing him reading that time in the spring, uh, we talked about the novel he had been reading, and it happened that it was one that I, uh, I had read myself. And he understood the novel, he remembered most of it, he had good comprehension and the whole bit. And the thing that frustrated me most about that is I would see kids with those problems and I would talk to the parents and make suggestions about his diet or her diet and I was often ignored. And yet, when kids would decide to try it themselves, there were people uh, like this young fellow I'm talking about and... I had another girl who had just had never had a successful year in school until her grade nine year when she uh, tried a gluten-free diet and it helped her complexion. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, as soon as it helped her complexion, she was gluten-free. She was gluten-free. Or she stayed gluten-free. And boy, she just soared academically. It was she had the most successful year she'd ever had. And her mom approached me shortly after I had talked to her about the diet, and her mom was quite annoyed with me. Her mom was a, a nurse, and she figured that I was, shouldn't be suggesting this to the kids. And we had a lengthy debate, and I tried to mollify her feelings, and uh, she was also annoyed that it was costing more to feed her daughter gluten-free. And at the end of the year, her mom came back and thanked me. And she was not yeah. very thankful the first time we spoke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so. a similar story, similar story, Doctor Ron. Um, my girlfriend teaches first grade, and she had a, 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 a girl in her class that was. Uh, they had to call the ambulance to school. She had a really bad asthma attack, and they put her in the hospital. And she came home to me, and I said, "Well, she's probably allergic, has sensitivities to dairy and wheat." And she went to the hospital. She got out. They finally decided to test her for uh, for food allergies. And sure enough, she was sensitive to dairy and sensitive to wheat. So I know exactly where you're coming from with that. And, you know, it's so sad that we aren't testing kids at school on a regular basis. If they're having problems with academics, Mm -hmm. I think we should be testing them right away. And uh, we should be giving them the opportunity uh, 
to to try different dietary interventions before we start them on all these uh, antibiotics and other things that can have lifelong negative implications for them. Yeah, yeah. Last question for you, and I'll I'll let you go because I probably kept you over here due to the problems that we had earlier with with the show, but. Um, the big thing right now is everybody is, the buzzword is IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and then you also have people who have Crohn's disease as well. How can these things be related to, to gluten? Well, uh, for instance, with Crohn's disease, they have the second highest rate of anti-glide and antibodies next to people with celiac disease. So that clearly they're mounting an immune response to gluten, but they're also mounting immune responses to other issues, uh, other foods. And mm-hmm. the issue in Crohn's disease is that the, the lesion goes all the way through the uh, intestinal wall and through the muscularis as well, whereas in celiac disease, the lesion is just the mucosal uh, architecture of the, on the wall of the uh, intestine. So... Um, they're clearly related, though, and a gluten-free diet, while it's not the answer to Crohn's, certainly helps. Mm-hmm. And with respect to IBS, there's a significant portion of people with IBS who, if they go gluten-free, their IBS goes away, and it stays away until they have some gluten. So I think that the picture there is quite clear. Yeah, I don't know why people are not making that um, connection. And, and the last thing is that, um, and, and for those of you out there listening too, and I know Dr. Ron will probably back me on this, I hope he will, uh, the importance of getting tested for these types of things, these food allergies and, and, and food sensitivities. Um, and you said in the book that if you're gluten sensitive, it's important to actually get another test to see what other foods you're sensitive to because it's, in all likelihood, you are sensitive to more foods. Is that is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. When you're overproducing zonulin, you've got what's called a leaky gut. So you're, uh, And the overproduction of zonulin comes from eating gluten. So you're allowing undigested and partly digested proteins of a, the, all the foods you're eating, you're allowing them access to your bloodstream, and you're going to develop food allergies. So the foods you eat most commonly are most likely going to be the foods that you're most allergic to. And by cutting them out, for instance, uh, I had to cut out eggs for seven or eight years. But once I'd stopped eating eggs for that long, I was able to resume eating them uh, without a problem. I had ELISA testing again, and uh, I'm apparently no longer sensitive to eggs. Now, that's unusual, uh, but, and I've never heard of anyone uh, being able to go back to eating gluten or dairy, but uh, I know that with other allergies, they can go away. If the memory cells die off, then you can actually get past that, especially if you're young. Yeah, and they're saying that if you repair the leaky gut, then at some point you can get into the foods. Um, I'm actually getting my test results back tomorrow, so it's going to be interesting to see what I'm allergic to. Yeah. And I'm having, I, I'm, 
I think I'm going to have to give up eggs and avocados I've been having. Not so much eggs, but I know when I eat avocados, I have a problem with those. And uh, for the listeners out there, I'm working towards just uh, being able to test other people, uh, working towards a nutrition uh, certification where I'll be able to test other people, but I'm not there yet. And uh, we're going to have Dr. Ron on my other show, Wellness Warrior Radio, show next week but you can test through diane kaiser you can go to her link dianekaiser.com and you'd be able to test through diane she's a functional diagnostic nutritionist and she can run the test on you to find out if you are sensitive to gluten or in other foods as well so uh, visit dianekaiser.com and um, again we will have dr ron on that show next week and that's a recorded show so we'll upload that again but Dr. Ron, is there anything you wanted to say in parting? Yes. A gluten-free diet seems tough the first couple of months, Mm -hmm. and it gradually gets easier to the point where it becomes natural and you don't even think about it anymore. Yeah, I can attest to that because I know. I just said, you know what, I'm going to do it for seven days, and I did it for seven days, and I had no more arthritis, and that's all the convincing I ever need, and I stuck with it since then and it's been hard when we with restaurants because we feel like we're bugging the waiter or something like that but i've learned to just ask them all the time when we go out hey what's what's in this food can you see if it's gluten in here do you guys have a dedicated <laughs> gluten area and most of the restaurants here are catching on i know you have uh, i don't know what you have in canada but like pf chang's and cheesecake factory they have gluten-free menus but I always tell people the important thing is just ask. Bother your waiter. Make them go back to the kitchen and ask. You're paying for your meal, so you should know what's in your meal. And we do that all the time. And I think, Yeah, we're a pain in the butt, my girlfriend and I, but we know that once we leave there, we're going to feel just as good as when we, we walked in the door. So. And, you know, my experience with wait staff is that uh, they they don't have any problem at all trying to accommodate special needs, uh, mm-hmm. they, I think, feel uh, valued and validated in their job when, they're, when people are asking them to do these things. Yeah, it causes them extra grief, for sure, but it's something that it lets them know that the job they do is important. Yeah, we've gotten a couple of dirty looks, and I'm like, hey, if you want this tip, <laughs> you, better, you better go back there and ask the cook what's in our, our food. But um, thank you so much, Dr. Ron. I look forward to having you on next week. Uh, I believe it's next Thursday we're going to have you on, and it will be me and Diane kind of grilling you. And uh, that should be a great show as well. And I'll, I, some of the questions I didn't get to on the show tonight, I will get to those on the Wellness uh, Warrior podcast. And those of you listening tonight, I will post that on Facebook, and you can listen to that one, too, so you can get some of the questions that I wasn't able to answer tonight due to time restraints. But, Dr. Ron, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. And I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the book. I cannot tell you how much I was educated and how much more I know about uh, gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. So thank you so much. That's great, and thank you for having me. All right, thanks. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yep, bye-bye. All right. Sorry about the technical difficulties. I think Dr. Ron ended up calling me on Skype, on my personal Skype, and didn't call through Blog Talk Radio, so that was a problem. And I never had that happen before. 
But there's a reason why things happen, so you'll know if they happen again, you'll know what to do. And I luckily, I knew what to do. It took me a little while, but I knew what to do. Next week is going to be a recorded show, and this is a show that you don't want to miss. Um, I'm going to uh, actually, we actually recorded the show last weekend, and I recorded the show with a lady from London, England, by the name of Juliet Scarf, and she's going to be coming on to talk about personal care products and cosmetics. And there's some great, great information in there. She schooled me as far as things that I didn't know. And, again, you won't be able to ask questions on this show. Um, I posted some things on Facebook and asked the, the questions of people who gave me some questions to ask her in advance. But it will be a recorded show, but it will be uploaded to Blog Talk Radio, and it will play at the normal time, 8 o'clock uh, next Wednesday. So you don't want to miss that show. And I'll post a Facebook event for that to let you know uh, when that show is going to come up. And then after that, I have some more guests coming up, um, interesting shows that are in the mix here, and then we're going to keep everything uh, going. And uh, if you want to get in contact with me, you have a question that you want to ask me, most of you might be my friends through Facebook, so you can drop me a line there or drop me a line on Darren at fat-man.com. So Darren at fat, don't forget the dash, man.com, and I will get your email if you're interested, we talked about gluten tonight. If you're interested in getting the test for that and getting a food sensitivity test to see what foods you're sensitive to, like I said, I'm working towards getting certification, but I'm not certified now. But my friend uh, or pod, partner is what I call her, Diane Kayser, can actually run that test for you. So if you go to dianekayser.com, you can uh, go on her schedule and get a consultation with her and learn more about food sensitivity. So Thanks for listening. Sorry about the difficulties that we had, but, hey, you, things happen. But, again, thanks for listening. I'll see you next week, same fat time, same fat channel. Later.